Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Advanced care planning can raise numerous legal questions. Today's guest, attorney Cameo Anders, helps us to navigate the legal landmines we may encounter when making necessary, but often difficult, advanced care planning decisions for ourselves and our loved ones. In this podcast, Anders begins by explaining surrogate decision-making and differentiating the terms incapacity and incompetency. She then focuses on the two primary advanced care planning documents, the living will and healthcare power of attorney explaining the differences between them and discussing various legal issues that can arise when one employs them in communicating end-of-life treatment decisions. Hello, Cameo. How are you today? Hi, Joe. I'm doing well. Thanks. Great. I was wondering if we could start our podcast today uh, with you giving us a little bit of your background, specifically, specifically if you could tell us about your education and your work. Sure. So I'm from South Dakota. Um, I grew up in a family of 10 kids, eight brothers and a sister, um, great Catholic family. Graduated from University of Dallas with a politics major, concentrated courses in German. Um, then I spent a couple years in Honduras doing volunteer work and speaking Spanish there before going to Ave Maria School of Law. Graduated with a Juris Doctorate in 2004. Um, let's see. While there, got married to a wonderfully supportive and inspiring spouse. Um, we now have a son and three daughters, live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, let's see, and I'm a stay-at-home mom slash attorney. So that's kind of always a weird combo. But what it means is I work from home, try to you know keep my kids from um, beating up on each other while I'm on important phone calls. Um, or yeah, podcasts. It's been a, it's, or podcast, right. So, um, yeah, so if there's any, you know, screaming in the background, edit that out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let's see. Then my practice is mostly in the area of real estate business and wills and trusts, so healthcare powers of attorney, which is one of my favorite areas um, to practice in, just helping people develop their their estate plan and, and take care of some of those major issues that we're going to talk about today. Um, with that, I always have to uh, give credit to God, I think, at this point, because the moment that my youngest started kindergarten, he sort of you know dunked me headfirst into this bioethics bucket, if I can call it that. And I was invited to join our Catholic Hospitals Ethics Committee, our medical school's ethics faculty, and then an advisory board that promotes education and understanding of end-of-life issues. So we're currently considering the POLST document in our state. It's something I'm passionate about and I love doing and talking about. So, so hopefully I can answer some of your questions well, at least. Well, I think you've, you've, you've started out quite well. All right. So today we're talking about uh, the legal challenges of advanced care planning. And one of the things that we need to kind of talk about first is surrogate decision-making. And um, you, you've said that you deal with end-of-life um, 
planning and that and, and those types of issues. So I'm going to imagine that surrogate decision making is probably an issue that you deal with. Am I correct in that? It, it is. Yeah, it's probably one of the biggest issues that I deal with in this end of life discussions, both legally and ethically. Um, you know, you've got well, you have first of all points of view of client, of healthcare provider, and of the surrogate themselves. So, you know, right there you've created three columns of issues, much less the issues themselves. It is, um, it is a big issue. Can you tell us, first of all, what a surrogate is and under what circumstances a surrogate is called upon to make decisions? Sure. So um, a surrogate is a person that is going to make a decision when someone is not able to, whether they're incapacitated or incompetent. Um, and as we know with healthcare, every decision should have informed consent um, that patient should make that decision with as much knowledge as they can. But when they are in a state where they cannot do that, then someone else needs to step in and make that decision for them. So with a surrogate, we have maybe a court-appointed person, and then we would call that surrogate a guardian. Um, mm -hmm. We have a person who would be appointed under a written document, so an advanced directive may appoint a surrogate. And then we would call them an agent or sometimes a proxy. Um, or we have this, this bubble of an area that is really unclear, and that's when no one has appointed a surrogate. So sometimes state law steps in and says, okay, if you're in that bubble, here's a pecking order for you. You know, look to spouse, look to parent, look to sibling, and we can go down that pecking order. But that bubble is where a lot of the issues take place when, when really nothing has been directed. Yeah, I, I can remember when I was working in a hospital system, they, these were, you know, the question of who has decision-making authority was always, it was one of the thorniest ones and, and one of the more common ones that we had to deal with. Um, you mentioned a couple of terms that I was wondering if you could explain to us. Um, you mentioned incapacity and incompetency. And I was wondering if you could tell us what's the difference between the two. Sure. So sometimes they're intermixed and interchanged, but from a, a legal standpoint, I think it's important to note that incapacity is when the physician determines that the person has does not have the mental capacity to make certain decisions. So it's a physician-determined state. Incompetency is a court determination. So the court will determine that someone is incompetent to make decisions, but those decisions are going to be singular and um, very specific. So maybe they'll say this person does not have the competency to care for their children, but that doesn't automatically follow then that they can't make decisions to care for themselves. The reason that it's important is because if you are in a hospital setting and someone says, I'm the guardian of this person, it's really important to look at those guardianship papers and say, are you the guardian of the person to make healthcare decisions? If you're not, they might be the guardian of the person to make decisions about who knows what, um, I would say finances, but sometimes those persons are called a conservator. But the point being is that if someone comes in with guardianship papers, they that doesn't automatically necessitate that they have the power to make healthcare decisions. Can incompetency and incapacity, are they ever at odds with one another? 
I, I've never come across a case where they are. Um, I, an incompetency is a determination by a judge, and a judge always looks to and respects any determination that the doctor would make. Mm-hmm. So if a doctor says this person is incapacitated, the judge is going to look at that and make a decision based on it. And because it's the doctor's um, field of expertise, I've never had a judge or known of a judge that says, nope, I'm going to make my own decision. So I've never seen them at all. Okay. All right. So now let's let's move into a discussion of advanced directive documents, specifically the living will and the healthcare power of attorney. So a couple questions. What issues do these documents address and what's the difference between them? Um, yeah, good question. So the issues that they address are the same. Um, they address, address the issues of when I am incapacitated, what do I want? Do I want full life-saving medical treatment? Um, do I want something less than that? Do I want artificial nutrition and hydration? And we'll see that artificial nutrition and hydration are almost always and should almost always be addressed separately. Um, and, you know, comfort care. Do I want some lesser form of comfort care? So it's, it's going to address those issues that come up when a person is incapacitated or incompetent. We just made the distinction, but right. incompetence has already been seen by a judge. So for the rest of the podcast, I'll just refer to incapacity. Um, and then did you ask me the differences? Yeah, I what's, think, what's the difference between a living will and a healthcare power of attorney? So that's kind of where we get into. Um, some nitty gritty, but some important differences. Um, when we, the first is when are they used? So with the living will, by its name alone, we know it's a, um, a living will. So it's going to be used at the end of life. And for example, in South Dakota, the person has to be in a terminal condition, death is imminent, and they're unable to communicate. So living will is, is very limited in its use. Mm-hmm. Um, the healthcare power of attorney is used whenever someone becomes incapacitated. So that doesn't necessarily have to be at the end of life. Um, we could have a 26-year-old female that's in a car accident and she goes into a coma. If she has a healthcare power of attorney, that's going to pop into operation. And then when she comes out of her coma, it's going to pop out of operation. Um, within the law, we use the word springing. So it springs back and forth. Um, that's one of the huge benefits between the documents that healthcare power of attorney is much more flexible and much more has a wider range of use. Um, there's two other big differences between them. One of them is when is that document going to become operable? So with a living will, for example, going back to the example of South Dakota, it becomes operable when there's that terminal condition, death is imminent, and the patient can't communicate. Um, and the physician is going to decide this person is in these three conditions, and so now the living will is operable. So that physician, we're going to notice, has a lot of power to sort of oversee the living will. With the healthcare power of attorney, that's going to become operable according to the document. So maybe the document is going to say it's operable immediately. Maybe the document will say 
it's operable when the principal, which is the person making the document, that principal says, I want to have it become operable when I put in writing that it is. Or maybe it's operable when the physician determines it or when a court determines it. So you have, uh, there's some state law and some policy issues here that might tweak that a little bit, but the important distinction is seeing that the power really remains with the principal, with the person making that document to say, this is a document I want and this is when I want it to be used. Um, and that is a, port and a very important difference too. The third important difference that I wanted to point out is, you know, regardless of how brilliant uh, an attorney is that's creating this document, there's going to be ambiguity. There's going to be something that happens in the future where that document is not going to address it. And so someone is going to have to interpret or translate the document. You know, what, do, what does this principle mean? What does this patient mean by life-saving medical treatment? Um, and so if we look at, that's my, my third difference, is who is going to translate the document? So with that living will, if there's any ambiguity in it, the physician is the one that determines it's oper when it is operable. They're also the one that is, has this implied um, power to translate the document. So in the end, the burden of responsibility to, to interpret that document um, lies in the hands of the physician. And sometimes that's only an implied power, so then the physician doesn't get a full protection of liability for it either. So with the living will, there's some, some danger to the physician as well, especially in the face of ambiguity. Um, with the healthcare power of attorney, in the face of ambiguity, the agent has been appointed. So you have the principal appoints an agent, and that agent can say, um, you know, we have some ambiguity here. Does life-saving medical treatment mean they want antibiotics during pneumonia or dialysis for end-stage renal disease or intubation for a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or artificial food and hydration, especially maybe they're in a permanent vegetative state. And so there's some conflict, you know, between secular and non-secular, whether artificial nutrition and hydration should be administered. The beauty, another, I guess, one of the beauties, I think, in all three of these differences, the healthcare power of attorney shines forth as the document. But again, the beauty here is that the agent interprets. So they can go back to, oh, I had this conversation, um, you know, with the principal. Oh, I had this memory of, you know, their solid Catholic faith or, um, you know, and they can in, they can sort of impute all of those things into their decision making. So in all three differences, I think it's, it's very clear that that healthcare power of attorney is really the leading document. Which, and I, and I know it may be different in different states. In fact, I know it's different in different states. Which of the two documents has precedence, at least in the state of South Dakota, the living will or the healthcare power of attorney? Oh, that's a good question. So usually the latest um, document, the, the, most, the latest document to be signed will have precedence. So if you create a healthcare power of attorney um, and, you know, sign it in July and then you create um, a living will and sign it in August, you know, usually you're going to look to the August one. Um, 
but the thing is, is if, and that's if there's a contradiction. So right. if they're the exact same thing and they don't contradict each other and you need that, you know, an agent comes forward and says, I have power here. I don't know if a living will is going to negate an agency power. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if I can answer that fully. <laughs> And I think it, I think it's going to be a different answers in different states because I just um, before coming to the NCBC I was living in Ohio, and apparently Ohio law said that the living will trumps the healthcare power of attorney. And I know that there is that there are situations there were actual clinical situations where there was a dispute between or there's well a dispute I guess between a patient's what it was stated on a patient's living will and what their healthcare power of attorney wanted for them. And the doctors went with the living will saying that in Ohio, the living will um, takes precedent. So it's, it's probably going to be different in different states, but that's, you know, that's kind of the fascinating part of all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With, with all that being said, um, with the differences and everything else, does one need both a living will and a healthcare power of attorney? No. Uh, in fact, I would say if you have both, you are creating a headache for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the living will, again, it's, it's going to say, this is what I want, A, B, and C. And then it's going to say, doctor determines when that pops into, you know, action or when it becomes operable. All of that can be contained in your healthcare power of attorney. So your healthcare power of attorney can say exactly what your living will says, plus some. And then also it's appointing someone to make those decisions. So, so no, don't create both. Um, just create one, please. Okay, and, everybody hear that who's listening to this podcast. I know, don't I do both. <laughs> Cameo's legal advice is not to create both. But, yeah. Are uh, are living wills and healthcare power of attorneys binding? Or maybe put a different way, are there situations where the documents can be overridden? Okay. Yes, they are binding. Um, and so we have these, you know, if we think back to like the Quinlan case, um, Karen Ann Quinlan and Nancy Cruzan, and even more recently, uh, Terry Schiavo, because those were surrogate uh, decision-making cases, mm -hmm. after those cases, state law has really tried to um, create law that regulates surrogate decision-making. So living wills and healthcare powers of attorney, I would be surprised if there was a state that didn't regulate that. So, so I think I'm safe to say, yes, they are binding by law. By law, you're going to have a very clear authority to create these documents. So the bigger question probably then is, can they be overridden? Um, and yes, they can be overridden if certain circumstances exist. So one of those would be if they go against somebody's conscience, and I'll talk about that in a minute, if they go against hospital policy or like an institutional conscience. So this has to um, usually have to have a religious connection to it. Uh, if they go against accepted medical practice or if they go against the law itself. So when we look at conscience, and again, I'll just speak about South Dakota law, if a physician or an agent or someone appointed in that document, if they have a conscience issue or an exemption to what is being asked of them, they can 
I don't want to say override the document, but they can refuse to um, enact that portion of the document. Yep. And the same with an institution, you know, if a uh, Catholic hospital is being asked to remove artificial food and hydration, and it's not at all burdensome, but ordinary care, they can override the document. And I, you know, if I could make air quotes here, I would, because override, by law, usually they have to transfer the patient or have someone else um, sort of in, comply with the document. So when you have a conscience um, overriding, it's not really an overriding. Um, the two areas that I think really could be overridden is if the document itself asks you to do something that is contrary to accepted medical practice, then you wouldn't have to comply with that. This is going to get into kind of a tough issue when, in some cases, artificial nutrition and hydration might seem to some to be not accepted medical practice in permanent vegetative states. So then, you know, that leads to another question. What do you do if a doctor says, I'm removing it despite the power of attorney that says, no, keep artificial nutrition and hydration, we consider it ordinary care. So that that's going to create another issue. But generally speaking, when something is against accepted medical practice, you could override the document. And then, as always, if it's against the law, <laughs> you know, you should right. override right. the document. Okay. I'd like to focus specifically on the healthcare power of attorney for a second. Um, what is the designated power of attorney legally empowered to do, and what can the power of attorney not do? So, good question. Um, the beautiful thing about the healthcare power of attorney is it's, it's kind of snuggled under the agency law. Um, so, if you, you can create an agency agreement for pretty much anything under the sun. Um, you know, like our real estate agents are under the agency agreement. Um, you know, any business agent relationship, it's all under the same idea of law. So really a healthcare power of attorney can do anything unless it's otherwise, you know, not permitted by law. Um, so the, the question then I think is what can it not do? Um, and you could look to state laws and see, well, what, what does it specifically say that a healthcare power of attorney cannot do? And in my experience, that is going to deal with artificial food and hydration. So in South Dakota, a healthcare power of attorney, um, if it doesn't, if it's just a general power of attorney and doesn't specifically address artificial food and hydration, then an agent may not have the power to remove it. Um, so maybe this is a good time to talk about artificial food and hydration for just a second. Um, if we sure. look at why this is an issue. Why does the law take that out? You know, the law allows someone to withhold or withdraw life-saving medical treatment. So why then is artificial nutrition and hydration sometimes addressed specifically? And my opinion, and I think it's backed up in, in by some good authority, but, you know, when we look at the Quinlan case, the Cruzan case, the Shivo case, when we look at even like the baby doe um, amendments from back in the 80s and I think the 80s. Um, you know, all of these have to do with surrogate decision making and 
And the huge crux of the matter is when we remove a ventilator, like in the Quinlan case, she remained alive for nine more years. So removing that ventilator wasn't the cause of her death. But if we remove artificial nutrition and hydration and death isn't imminent or it's not overly burdensome um, or the body isn't, you know, the body is assimilating it well and it's, it's ordinary care, then the cause of death is going to be starvation or dehydration. So when we look at artificial nutrition and hydration and we look at those court cases, um, you know, and then we see other court cases like Glucksburg and Baco, which dealt with physician-assisted suicide, um, they look to intent and cause. And, and if you have intent to kill or to, to, you know, have someone die, and if you are doing something that causes that death, then we are leaning towards euthanasia. In fact, we've arrived there. Um, and this, mir- this mirrors Catholic teaching. Um, you know, we have the Declaration on Euthanasia in 1980. We have John Paul's Evangelium Vitae, 1995. And then we have the Ethical and Religious Directives in Part 5 there. And they all say the same thing, that intent and cause is what is necessary for euthanasia. So this is a beautiful area where the law and Catholic teaching actually agree. I should repeat that because it's probably not very often that I can say that. But um, so then artificial nutrition and hydration, intent and the cause, you know, if you have the intent to cause death and then you remove artificial nutrition and hydration prematurely, it's going to cause death. And so in a lot of areas, and I I can only speak for South Dakota because that's where I'm licensed, but in a lot of states, this has been a consideration, especially after those major U.S. Supreme Court cases. What should we do with artificial nutrition and hydration so that we're not leaning into euthanasia? And I know there's uh, there's some move as you're speaking. I'm I'm thinking about um, there are some states that are looking to change. Now I don't know if this is in statute or where it is, but they're looking to redefine whether nutrition and hydration is medical treatment or not, and how you answer that question will go towards. You know, the question of, you know, can you remove, um, whether it be a, a feeding tube or even a spoon feeding for a patient? So, you know, as you're, as you're speaking about the law and Catholic teaching being congregant on this issue, there's, there's some move amongst some to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to change even that. So, you know, another, another challenge facing us. This is fascinating. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me from an ethical perspective because I've, you know, in my previous work and here at the NCBC, we deal with this, you know, with people, um, you know, in clinical situations who have to make a decision in the here and now, and you're dealing with it. Um, I don't know if you're dealing with it in a clinical situation, but at least on the front end, when people are, are trying to, you know, make decisions about or, or clarify what kind of end of life uh, treatment choices they want to make. So we're, we're, we're kind of dealing with the issue both on, you know, in, in slightly different ways, but, but, dealing with these same challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's a, it's a tough challenge because it's, I think the law isn't as clear as it could be. Um, right. And there's so many issues, so it's hard to be clear. Well, this leads us right into our next uh, question. What legal recourse does a healthcare provider or a family member have 
If they believe that an agent designated as a power of attorney is not acting in accord with either the patient's wishes or the patient's best wishes. Hmm. So, um, if we look at a living will, the physician is the one that's going to be the point person. So, the first recourse, I think, is to have that conversation with the physician. So, for example, in, in South Dakota, it's the attending physician. Um, some states might require two physicians or, you know, so it, it's state dependent. But so if you're in South Dakota, you could go to that attending physician and you could have a conversation about the living will and about what's happening and say, this is what we think would be in the patient's best interest. Um, if that attending physician isn't open to listening, then there's some wiggle room. Maybe you could get a different attending physician. Um, you know, if if you've kind of exhausted those options, then you can always petition the court. And I hate to say, like, that's the best option, go to the court. Have those conversations first. The court can appoint a guardian that sort of oversteps uh, the physician's power there. If it's a healthcare power of attorney, the agent has is the point person. And so have that conversation with the agent. The difference between best interest, why do you think it's this person's best interest? You know, again, right. um, well, before I say again, the next remedy is the court. A uh, physician once told me sort of a scenario that I'll replay here, but, you know, if there is a power of attorney is trying to do something that, um, let's say, the agent is a sibling and another sibling has an issue with it, then, you know, if that sibling is in Florida and her issue is, you know, don't remove the ventilator yet. I want to get there to say goodbye to my dad. Um, you know, that's a that's an important thing to consider. And a hospital, I think, will consider, okay, this agent has the power to say remove the ventilator, but this other sibling has called and said, please wait a week until I can get there and say goodbye. You know, the that's not is, uncommon. Yeah. Not uncommon at all. And and I think, unfortunately, one of the big questions is, you know, who's going to sue us? Well, certainly not the patient who will likely pass away. Right. Probably not the agent who just has to wait a week, but very likely the sibling who never got to say goodbye. So right. there's some wiggle room, I think, to um, have these conversations. In the end, there's always the option of petitioning the court to appoint a guardian to make a different decision. I don't know if that always works, you know, in that person's favor, but it is an option. And that's not always an easy process either to, to gain a guardianship. No, it, it isn't. In South Dakota, there's sort of a, a quicker process of appointing a temporary guardian. And, you know, there's, there's so many factors that are involved with that. So I can't say that is easy also, but um, yeah, it is a court process and that's not always easy. A similar question, but take it from a slightly different angle. What should a, a healthcare provider or even a family member do if they have a religious or conscience objection to what a patient has indicated in their living will? Yeah, so um, within the law, there is a conscience protection, especially for um, abortion and sterilization. It's, it's codified 
very clearly. And then any other conscience protection aside from that is, um, is also protected but can be overridden if there's some undue hardship or, you know, there's a couple court cases that use language like, um, you know, if there's a de minimis cost or burden to the institution, then conscience doesn't really play in. But this is hard to speak directly on because there's so many factors that apply. But if someone has a religious uh, objection, um, it's, it's likely going to be noted because the law protects religious objections. So again, same thing, have those conversations. Um, and in the end, your only option might be to petition the court. Um, but the power of conversation with the people in the healthcare arena is, is amazing. Um, you know, I serve on an ethics committee and a lot of these questions come like, well, daughter has a religious um, objection to us removing this artificial nutrition and hydration. Even though it, we're at a point where, you know, death is imminent and um, it's become overly burdensome on the patient and the body isn't even assimilating it. So within Catholic teaching, that artificial nutrition and hydration could be removed. A, a religious exemption from a family member always weighs heavy on our hearts, you know, right. and so we're going to look at what can we do to try and accommodate this person while still giving the best care to the patient. Um, so the power of conversation, I think, is amazing in a lot of situations. Cameo, are there any situations in which you would counsel a person to not complete a living will or healthcare power of attorney? Okay, so yes, I think I would, I would not counsel someone to complete a living will. It's going to be insufficient every single time. I would always, always, always counsel someone to complete a healthcare power of attorney. Not just that, but to complete it, then to appoint an, within it, appoint your agent, appoint an alternate agent, and then don't surprise your agent with this document, <laughs> um, your incapacity. Have a conversation with them. You know, tell them, this is what I want in this situation, or I don't know what I would want in this situation, but I really love, you know, that I want to, my family and I want to see my grandchildren or, you know, have those conversations. So when that agent is called on to act, they know they're acting in your best interest. What final words of wisdom would you like to share with us as we, as we conclude our podcast today? Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm, if I haven't said it 50 times already, <laughs> if you don't have a healthcare power of attorney, put that at the top of your list to do. Uh, the best gift that you can give your family and your loved ones is ease of decision-making in the face of death. And the best way to do that is through that power of attorney document. With that, appoint your agent and, and at least one alternate agent. And then don't surprise them. So have those conversations with your agent and those alternates about your wishes and especially about artificial nutrition and hydration because that is the area that is, I would say, it's touchier than other life-saving medical treatment. Make sure that your agent knows that that is ordinary care unless it's overly burdensome. The Catholic Church does a beautiful job explaining when it is overly burdensome. That's a great wrap-up and summary. Thanks, Cameo. Yes, thank you, Joe, and have a great rest of your day. 
For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.